Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. In this episode of Writing Matters, I speak with my friend and colleague from Michigan, Dave Stewart Jr. He's a teacher at Cedar Spring High School and works extensively with teachers both in the United States and now around the world. We'll hear some of his perspectives on what it means to be a history teacher who teaches writing and how to make our lives more effective as educators. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today, we speak with a fellow Michigan educator and author, Dave Stewart Jr., who's a high school teacher at Cedar Springs, which as the crow flies is not too far from where I'm at in Michigan, but we only seem to meet each other at national conferences and uh, online occasionally through conversations like this. Uh, He's a blogger and an author, and as you can see today, a father, husband, and a good family man. So welcome, Dave. How are you? I'm good, Troy. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. So as we jump into our conversation, um, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit more about your path through education. How is it that you have gotten to where you are today as an educator? Sure. I I graduated from uh, University of Michigan's School of Ed in 06. And um, I have my credential in secondary English and history education. I jumped right into a job in Baltimore. I worked in the middle school there, uh, taught sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade, three years of teaching in Baltimore. And, and then actually I stopped teaching for a year. Uh, almost everything about the way that I taught in Baltimore was unsustainable. I was probably working 80 or 90 hours a week. Um, just knew that I wasn't going to be able to do it. So I took a year off, not, not sure if I'd return. Um, but when my wife and I moved back to Michigan, teaching was sort of the only gig I could find. And I quickly realized that I, I, I had missed it for the year that I was away. And so from then on, my goal was to figure out how, how to teach well in a way that optimizes outcomes for all students but also without sacrificing your life and, you know, your mental health and things. So in, uh, in 2012, I started to write about that journey. That, that, that was the start of my blog. And fast forward to today, I've been keeping the blog for seven years or so. I've written a couple of books for teachers and had a great chance, just like you said, I mean, to talk with teachers around the country um, at conferences and professional development engagements. And that's sort of what has connected you and I is running into each other, like you said, and uh, most recently in New Orleans, mm-hmm. running into each other. And, and, uh, and, and so uh, many, many things have come out of the writing, the writing that I started in, in 2012. That's amazing. So I definitely want to talk about the book here and about your pedagogical approach. I, I think you mentioned the word sustainable without mm-hmm. sacrificing. I think that's a core of who you are and what you do. But tell us just a bit more about that blog. And, and at the time, yeah. what what got you to sign up and, and push publish? What was that first yeah. step for you as a blogger and as a teacher writer? Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, a little bit of a 
very practical story. I was feeling, I was feeling a pressure from having a young family and I was, I was about to get a summer job, but I thought, well, I really like teaching. I'm, I'm learning all these things. Maybe I could just write a book about teaching and that could be my summer job. I could write a book. I had no idea about the finances of writing a book. I just figured maybe you can, maybe, maybe it'd be like mowing, mowing yards, but more up my alley. And, um, I remember looking at this book, how to write a book proposal. And it said, you, you really need to have some outlet for people to even have a sense of who you are and what you might have to say in a book. You need, need something else. And they recommend starting a blog. So I looked up how to start a blog and I started to write. I initially was focused on the common core state standards just mm -hmm. because I, I knew nothing about them. And I, I figured I'll force myself to read the, these standards. And I'll just write about the process of reading them and seeing how and if they connect to what I think is good teaching. And so that, that, that was the first phase of the blog and that spun off into my first book. And then I very eagerly broadened the writing scope of the blog into uh, more general concepts like literacy or student motivation or, or even like teacher longevity, sustainable practices, like you said. Yeah. And so that led you then to write these six things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I wonder, yeah, I wonder if you might talk just a little bit, both about the process of writing mm -hmm. these six things, but also your, your newfound interest in longevity and sustainability yeah. and making practices more livable for teachers as right. well as for students. Well, I started to hear from teachers through the blog as they're trying to implement the common core and teach themselves all these, these new standards and, but, but, you know, also very familiar standards, the common core literacy standards ended up being not super revolutionary. There were some shifts, but there wasn't a huge departure from what many of us had already been trying to do. So, but, but teachers were feeling all this pressure to learn all these things and teach all these skills. And, and so as I would travel to schools, to give professional development on the standards. And I'd, I'd be in the room with science teachers and social studies teachers and health teachers. And all these people are in this training to learn about literacy. I just started to summarize, well, if we just do a few things really well and really frequently and with, with our eyes wide open, paying attention to what's happening and, and gain expertise in, in a few things, then I think we'll probably end up hitting the heart of these standards and whichever ones follow. And we'll also do good by a, a broad swath of our students, not just this group or that group, but the whole, the whole eclectic group. And so that's, that's what these six things basically became is so, so if we just do these six things and in each chapter of the book, I treat, um, I, I treat these things that I think the research points to and, um, but, but things that can also be really hard. So for example, one of the chapters is about writing and writing instruction is as any, any teacher of writing knows is fraught with difficulty, uh, is, is fraught with a lot of pressure around feedback, giving feedback to student writing. 
so 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 that's kind of the the makeup of each chapter this is this is sort of what the research says about student motivation that's another chapter and these are some of the interventions that the research lays out and and these are some other ways that great teachers around the country and the world have been bringing these things into their practice for a long time Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the book is really just, if you can get good at these six things, you can probably ignore most of the rest and you're going to be a good teacher. You can sleep well at night. You can go home to your family and rest assured that yes, you earned your paycheck. You, you don't have to feel all these things. Teachers feel like, Oh man, I can't even believe I'm getting paid. I'm so bad at this. I'm dropping so many of my response. Like, no, just let's, let's try to do six things really well. <laughs> a little bit right. better every year. Right. And at risk of greatly over-summarizing, but if, if I've been reading your book and reading your blog and having conversations with you, I, I get the feeling that um, quite a bit of that centers on relationship building yeah. and thinking about who you are in the classroom and how you interact with students in, in a real way and not, mm-hmm. not just a, oh, hi, how's it going? Hi, how's it going? But to yeah. actually sit have those relationships with students. I wonder if you could talk a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that. Yes. Interesting. I sometimes challenge teachers, you know, it's a common phrase all around the, the, the world that education is all about relationships. And I like to challenge teachers and say, is it though? Like, is that what, is that why our society invests all these resources in education? Is that what parents are hoping for when they send their child to school? Is, is that the top of the mountain? that are, that will have great relationships in our schools. Um, the answer is definitely no. Uh, relationships are an important bedrock component of high functioning cultures all over the place. I mean, not just in education, but everywhere. And, and, and so like in the, in my student motivation work, I, I emphasize building relationships. Yes. For the purpose of helping our students to, find this classroom context, a place where, you know what, I kind of want to push myself. I want to challenge myself. I want to do the work that is required to gain greater levels of mastery in whatever the class is. So the research is pretty clear that relationships are one important piece of the motivation puzzle. And the reason we care about the motivation puzzle is not so that we can control kids or um, what manipulate people. It's, it's so that when they walk into our context, they say, Oh, this is, yeah, this is a place where I'm going to push myself. This is a place where I'm going to, um, I'm going to do what the expertise researchers call deliberate practice, which, you know, deliberate practice is sort of a buzzy term, but deliberate practice is unpleasant. I mean, I, <laughs> writers, and, and this is one reason writing is so such a valuable thing in the classroom writers are doing deliberate practice almost all the time when they're sort of, when they're trying to take this idea that's fuzzy in their head and make it clear and coherent on the page to a reader so to to engage in deliberate practice to engage in you know edge of your ability level writing is really uncomfortable and so relationships good good functional relationships provide a important contextual piece to make us say, okay, well, 
I'll go mess around with this discomfort, this discomfort of writing, because I've, I've got this other, these other parts of the context are, they're fine. They're good. They're strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then, and I really appreciate you clarifying that because I think, yeah, we can fall into this trap of saying, oh, just build good relationships and everything else will happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I hear you saying here is that the relationships are absolutely important, but then it's what we do with those relationships that really matters. Yeah. Yeah. And the relationships are also what we all love too, right? Like the relationships really, really fill our buckets. So that's another. Another important reason to pay attention to the skill set of building good relationships with diverse people, right? Like teenagers and 35-year-olds don't necessarily easily get along, mm-hmm. and there's so much range in a given class of teenagers. So the skill of being able to develop a good relationship with you know, 35 different teenagers as a 35-year-old male person, I mean, it's it's... It's a skill. It is. It takes work and it's not like there's no silver bullets. Like I'm still working on some. It's at the time of us filming this, it's November. Yeah. Still still working on some of that. But but it 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 makes it easier to motivate yourself as a teacher too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So once you've established those relationships with your writers and knowing that they're they're still flexible and in flux probably all the way through May and June of any yeah, given oh school yeah. year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what are some of those additional moves that you make for deliberate mm. practice, especially in the teaching of writing? Yeah. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, your primary responsibility right now is in a social studies classroom, but I imagine right. you're still using writing all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me and the yeah. English teacher down the hallway for ninth graders, we're, we're kind of in a friendly competition of let's, let's, let's do this. Let's, <laughs> let's build writing drenched curricula. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the, one of the things Troy that I would say in my, um, in, in as a, as an English teacher at the high school, I, I would use this too, is using speaking situations in class speaking. So I love mm-hmm. to use this pop-up debate, structure, very simple structure for facilitating um, back and forth conversations or whole class discussions. Uh, I love to use that as a way to make explicit the moves that good writers make. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, now that, that also takes time to build even the type of uh, class where every ninth grade child is going to be willing to stand up and speak Mm-hmm. in a given pop-up debate. Um, but taking that time and, and scaffolding up to those, to that, to that circumstance in which every child will now participate, mm-hmm. you can then start to really find the students, they're motivated by pop-up debate. They, they like this, the live action of speaking mm-hmm. with one another. They, they like the fact that they feel a little bit nervous. I, I, teach them to that, that's normal that's the the default human response to public speaking is anxiety it's the mm. people who don't feel anxious that are weird <laughs> uh, we, we 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 establish that every year early on just by a poll of the students um so so th- they're engaged by this like 
we're just, you know, uh, this week we're discussing what drove the sugar trade. What, what was the main factor that drove the sugar trade that, um, you know, in turn created a massive fuel for the slave trade. Mm-hmm. And so this is not necessarily an interesting topic, but knowing that they get to debate this after reading a bunch of sources mm-hmm. motivates my students to do the reading work. And now when they debate it, we will use that and we'll be taking close notes during that discussion to say, okay, then what would an essay answering this topic look like? How could we essentially engage in a debate on the page? And so framing an essay as the natural uh, culmination of a unit where they've read lots of sources and then they've discussed with one another different differing interpretations of those sources. Yeah. And then now we're going to go ahead and write an, an argumentative essay, which, you know, that topic is that that's not a, like a happy word for my students. Right. Right. But, but do, do you see what I'm saying? How this progression makes that not something that my students are as leery to engage in and wrestle with. Yeah. So using speaking as an entry point into writing is the short way of saying what I just, what I just said. <laughs> right. Well, and to, to build from that um, and touching base on a resource that I know you and I both rely on in our writing classrooms, uh, the Graf and Birkenstein's yeah. They Say, I Say. I think yeah. you said a few things that were really important here. One is scaffolding. One is mm-hmm. rehearsal through speech, which yeah. leads to writing. Yeah. Writing is framed as a conversation and a debate, not as a, oh, here, name yes. your thesis and name your three points and summarize. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how you um, use those sentence templates mm-hmm. from the They Say, I Say text to move your, your students into these larger conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is another, the times, the times that we ran into each other, the rare times in Michigan when, when uh, Graf and Birkenstein came to up to central where you're at and Mm -hmm. um, gave a talk and they say, I say the, I mean, I mean, Graf and Birkenstein created those after looking at what their students were struggling with. Mm -hmm. They were, they were struggling just with this argue speak as they call it. They could engage in amazing arguments on topics that were germane to their life, you know, the whatever the sports or music or culture uh, is star Wars episode one, terrible or good. They could <laughs> in, in topics they cared about, they could do amazing argumentation, but, but then what about these academic topics? They just felt like, I don't know what to do. So the sentence templates as many writing instructor instructors have discovered are, so helpful in demystifying, and that's mm-hmm. that's Graf and Birkenstein language, demystifying the moves that academic arguers make, or you know, op-ed column arguers make. These are these are both uh, th- these templates were drawn from both of those types of sources, mm-hmm. and so I, I do find that with my ninth graders. So the way it will often go is we have this pop-up debate and students will use some moves mm-hmm. and I'll say, I've noticed a lot of, I'm noticing a lot of you trying to reference what somebody else is saying. So a lot of you are repeating the phrase going off of what Trevor said, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Or I agree with Daphne 
but I would also say blah, 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 blah. And so what we'll do is just say, well, let's, let's make some templates here. Let's record these in our spiral notebook because that's, that's really what we're doing anyways. And let's look at which one of these work. Does going off of what Trevor says work? Or how about if we tried what, um, what Kelsey just did? Kelsey just said, so Trevor, you're basically saying blank. And I don't agree with that totally because I also think that you're missing blank. And I'll say, so, so that's the difference between just like a transition phrase going off mm-hmm. what Trevor said. And, you know, that's a vague transition phrase. Mm-hmm. Good on you for, for at least attempting the transition, but it's, it's not a super sophisticated one. And now what Kelsey's doing is paraphrasing what Trevor has said. That is a category inside of Graf and Birkenstein. They've got a bunch of templates for that. So one of the, one of the um, tools that I developed f- totally from Graf and Birkenstein is called Paraphrase Plus. And I'll teach this to my students once we have enough examples. And it's just, you take some sentence templates that help you with paraphrasing. And then Graf and Birkenstein basically say, there's, so there's three things that sophisticated uh, arguers tend to do after they paraphrase, they either agree and add on or they disagree with reasons or they complicate. And the complication move is, you know, it's asking a piercing question to what someone has said or uh, Trevor, do you think you might be missing this? And so that, that paraphrase plus I've created a little graphic. If, if anyone listening just Googles paraphrase plus, you'll see that it's just on the blog. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I attribute that to, to uh, Jerry and Kathy because it's really their work presented, presented visually. Um, and, and that's also, these, these things are, all these things are also in, um, in these six things too, obviously more organized than I'm discussing them. But uh, <laughs> No, that makes good sense. And in fact, through the wonders of technology, I'll just share it really quickly. Oh, there, so we, you, go. You, there you've, we go. You've, you've taken the Graf and Birkenstein templates right. and then just visualize that, yeah. which I think is very, very smart. And in one of the conversations that you know, I often have with teacher colleagues is like, well, how is this different from the five paragraphs? And like, mm-hmm. oh, it's so different. And I, I struggle to articulate yeah. how it is so different. What is your answer to that yeah. question? When you, when you talk about teaching students these moves that writers mm-hmm. make and giving them the sentence templates, I don't see that at all the same as five paragraph essays. What, what, what is yeah. your response to that when people raise that criticism? Yeah. How do you complicate it? Right. Right. So, so the, I mean, the interesting thing is with the five paragraph is that um, it is just, it's like a macro template. And the problem with the five paragraph is that it's really easy to teach it to death and um and it's really easy for a student having been taught it to death to then do it unthinkingly. And so the nice thing about the sentence templates is that it's harder, it's harder to get by using the sentence templates unthinkingly because if you're trying to paraphrase what an author has said and you butcher the paraphrase, it's inaccurate. 
you kind of don't get to move on, right? We've, we've mm. got to fix so, so we can quickly identify there's, a, there's actually a comprehension issue here or something. And, and the writer also, because they're using, they're, they're drawing from a menu of templates, the writer is also, I think, more naturally challenged to think about what they're doing versus to just go through the motions and intro, mm-hmm. body, 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 conclusion. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, I mean, the, the, the key goal of any writing unit or lesson is we want our students to think, to think basically about what they're doing, to be conscious choosers, conscious explorers versus um, unconscious, just task completers. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, I, th- I really think that that's in the hands of the instructor. You could probably find a way to make, they say, I say mindless. I'm sure that you could. Most mm-hmm. things can become mindless. So yeah, for, and, and there's a lot of critiques of the templates that, that say exactly what you've said. I mean, I've heard it too. It's just a baby with the bathwater kind of approach. Like, yeah. um, and you're clumping two things together that I don't think are, that I don't think need to be clumped. Right. Well, I, I appreciate the way that you describe that. You know, the templates are a set of choices that writers have, mm-hmm. and then they have to start putting the puzzle pieces together yeah. as compared to here is this completely fleshed out prefab outline where you're not, I mean, you rarely, you barely have any choice in that process. Right. And then, yeah, I mean, just helping them be conscious about those choices Mm -hmm. and your paraphrase plus like reminding them that, well, you can usually agree, you can usually disagree, or you can usually complicate. Now there are certainly other things you could do, but those are the three big things that you'll probably do. Yeah. I think that's helpful as well. Just to give them that, that reminder. So, yeah, that's good. So then we get to that really challenging part of giving them feedback. Mm -hmm. How and when and in what ways do you uh, provide students with feedback on their writing? Yeah. So as, as I share in, in the writing chapter, and this is often the the part that the teachers really engage with um, in the book is my, my bias for feedback is always simple. So Mm -hmm. anytime that I see a massive rubric that covers an entire page, you know, and is, Mm -hmm. uh, and and has a 1000 word count in inside of all its boxes, that's, that's probably going to be a difficult rubric to use. It's also probably gonna be a really difficult rubric to teach. And if we're not teaching what the heck the rubric is meant to do, like what its components mean, then we're really just jumping through a hoop and it's not feedback. Feedback in order to be useful has to be intelligible to the person receiving the feedback. So if we just start with the first principles of feedback, you Mm -hmm. want it to be quick and manageable, quick and manageable. And so I've found over the years that for a lot of my writing, especially early on, the feedback that I need to be giving is, um, you know, taking, taking a selection of article responses or something that my students have written, reading 10, pulling out two to three things to teach the next day, 
and have my students um, take take notes on basically and and find examples of in their own writing, and then give the give the pieces back. So whole class next day feedback I've found is often far more effective than individualized three weeks down the road feedback mm-hmm. because the students still have in their recent memory, this piece that they just worked on. Another thing that facilitates quicker feedback is uh, just a single point rubric mm-hmm. is your thesis in, in, in my classes, the, the line is our theses need to be historically defensible on topic and they need to lay out a line of reasoning. So we look at a lot of examples of that. We practice creating theses like these, the different things we're studying in world history. And then when we're finally ready to, to start putting together essays, that's just a, little, a one line on their rubric. Is your thesis historically defensible on topic? Is it a, does it lay out a line of reasoning? And, and it's just yes or no, basically. Mm-hmm. So a lot of writing teachers, they say, ah, but what about all the gray in there? So what the gray often does is confuses my students and confuses me while I'm giving, while I'm giving the feedback through the rubric. And remember, mm-hmm. rubrics are only feedback if everyone involved understands the rubric and everything on it. So that stuff that I said about teaching the thesis, practicing with sample prompts related to our uh, what we're studying in class, that's, that's non-negotiable if I want this to be useful feedback. Yep. But once all my students understand what a thesis looks like in a history class, that's, a, that's effective, then a zero or a one on a thesis line in a rubric can act as feedback. Mm-hmm. And so by working through the different core skills that I want my students to be able to demonstrate, in response to different types of history prompts over the course of a two semester school year, um, we, we can have a six item rubric that I can work through fairly quickly in, look, in reading through student papers. I can write comments that I think will help students based on the lessons that I've taught. Mm-hmm. And I can, give, I can give these back much more quickly. Mm. So, and, and, and part of this is possible because I'm a history teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm a, I'm a, I always say I'm an English teacher who currently just teaches history. My school has said mm-hmm. we want literacy across the school day. And so they've sent English teachers to different other departments to facilitate that, to help that. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm, I, I, I get a little bit of help because I don't have to, I don't, I don't feel the entire weight Mm-hmm. of students writing mastery on my shoulders. But as a content area teacher, I, I do feel some and I should feel some. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, like that's a big problem in our schools too, the content area teachers saying that's the English teacher's job. Mm-hmm. So I, I will say though, Troy, I mean, I, I've written various of these, uh, uh, I think it's better, better, saner grading practices or something like this. Mm-hmm. I've, there's, there's some of these on my blog. There's a bunch more in the book in the writing chapter, but the book to look out for for the for the listeners is uh, Matt Johnson, another Michigan educator. Mm-hmm. Matt Johnson in Ann Arbor, he has a book coming out called Flash Feedback. I mm. think it's February or March 2020. Okay. I've had a chance to read the book, and that's 
that I think is going to be a game changer for folks in an English setting who have 150 essays that people are expecting the classic approach to feedback on, which is sitting down for 10 minutes with each piece and um, writing a bunch of comments or what have you using the big English rubric. Mm-hmm. So, so Matt Johnson's book is going to be a very important contribution to this question that you're asking for English teachers specifically. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I think too, just hearing you with that reminder that keep it simple, like yeah. kids are only, I mean, any of us as writers are only going to be able to absorb so much feedback. Yeah. So as teacher, save yourself some time and some gray hair and just focus on two or three important things and move forward from there. Yeah. Yeah. The working memory is small. The human working memory is what it is. We can't change that no matter how many words we write on that paper. So let's accept the science about the brain. The working memory is small. Let's give less, Mm -hmm. but better comments and spend less time. Exactly. Exactly. Well, in the same mode of writing, as we come to the close of our conversation and thinking about what it means to be a writer, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit more about the role of writing in your professional life. Mm -hmm. We've obviously had that thread throughout our whole conversation here, but as you envision yourself as a teacher writer, what does that mean for you Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis as you identify yourself as a teacher writer? I, I, I think that I'm still hardly realizing how much writing about teaching has enhanced my motivation Mm. for teaching, my motivation for researching, my -hmm. sense of purpose. I mean, there's those days when it seems like everything you're doing in the classroom doesn't make any sense, but to be able to write about that, clarify my thinking about that and, and publish that. And then to see, oh my gosh, like, that helped a teacher who emailed me and said, yep, this is what I needed, needed to hear today too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, Troy, been the best, apart from deciding to be a teacher, the best decision that I ever made is to start a silly little blog on a topic that I wanted to learn more about and using that blog as, as a way to motivate myself to learn about the topic. Uh, yeah, I can't. I mean, I've written 500 or so thousand words mm-hmm. on the internet in the last seven years. And I, I can tell you, it's painful to go back and look at some of the old stuff, right? right. Just yeah. like I know this, this year's stuff is going to be painful in three years. So, so there's a little bit of exposure that you have to accept, but holy cow, the um, the clarification of your thinking that happens through the writing process, your ability mm-hmm. to communicate better to colleagues and to students about mm-hmm. the work that you're doing. It's amazing. As you know, yeah. well, yeah. Well, half a million words on your blog. I, I applaud yeah. you for that, my friend. That's incredible. <laughs> chipping away a little bit of time. They're not all super high quality, right? Like, <laughs> always tell people you get what you pay for on that blog. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they, I think people really value what you put out. And mm, yeah, uh, I know they're... when I get your updates in my inbox, I certainly appreciate them. So mm. thank you so much thank for the you, work Troy. that you I do. I appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, it's been enjoyable to talk to you and I, I definitely appreciate the work that you do with and for your students as mm -hmm. well as uh, with and for other educators. So thank yeah. you. Likewise, Troy. A true pleasure. Thank you. Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.